Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody joining us on Zoom for the first time. I'd like to start class by uh, asking you to talk to each other before I lead a meditation and, and give a talk in service of a core Buddhist principle, which is that we can't do this alone. That um, Buddhism is a relational path. That's a path about how we relate Inwardly, a lot of the teachings are how do you relate to your own mind and your own actions and your own sensations and emotions. And, uh, but then it's how do you re relate to other people's uh, communication and presence. And um, there's a line in the mindfulness teachings from the Buddha where he says, we practice this both inwardly and outwardly. And often meditation can feel like uh, it's in all inward. It's all me paying attention to my mind, my body, my heart, my emotions. But the encouragement of the Buddha is that we also learn to pay attention to each other's uh, words and minds and emotions and, and um, that we can't do it alone, that we need support. We're also trying to, Buddhism asks for, encourages, inspires a, a very alternative way of life a life of being kind, which is really abnormal in this world. Not a lot of kindness is not the norm. A life of generosity, which is abnormal in this world. We live in a world of selfishness and greed and uh, a life of compassion, of actually learning. And not only the sort of um, empathy for others, but uh, compassion towards our own pain learning to tolerate our pain, learning to care about it, and, and caring about other, each other as well. So all of these, you know, general spiritual principles that Buddhism has, and they're not purely Buddhist, but, um, you know, maybe universal, wise uh, attitudes. But the re reality is we live in a universe where um, people don't practice kindness that much, don't practice compassion that much, generosity, forgiveness, and mindfulness is uh, so simple, but so rare. And so part of the perspective is it's necessary to know other people that are trying to be mindful, to remind us to be mindful, to support us to be mindful, to remind us to be kind, to support us to in the compassion and forgiveness and uh, principles of, of Buddhism. So I ask you to talk to each other so that you meet each other, you start to connect a little bit easier in the room than it is for the people on Zoom, in the Zoom room. Um, but what I hear from the people that attend online is that you know at least there's making some connections, people all over the country that are joining us. Uh, at least they get to talk to each other a little bit from their homes, wherever they are. And if you come regularly, you'll start to, um, feel like you're part of the group and that you know people in the room. Of course, when you're new to a, any kind of group, you can feel like, well, I, I'm not part of this thing. But once you come and you talk to some people and you introduce yourself and after a few weeks and you start to recognize each other and, and uh, connect and hopefully it extends beyond 
against the stream into your lives, into your personal lives, that you make some friends. So the topic um, for communicating with each other tonight uh, is about um, when you reflect on your meditation practice, your spiritual life, your what is it that hinders your progress the most? What makes not suffering difficult for you? What hinders your, right? The whole Buddhist perspective is it's possible to not suffer about the pain in our lives. It's possible to not suffer about the difficulties in the world. That this is the core teachings of enlightenment is that there's still going to be pain. There's still going to be difficulties. There's still going to, but it's possible to not suffer about it. What hinders your ability to not suffer? The Buddha gave a list of five that I'll talk about in the Dharma talk tonight, but I'll, I'll give you the preview, which is that um, craving for pleasure hinders our ability to not suffer. Aversion to pain hinders our ability to not suffer. Uh, restlessness, anxiousness, impatience hinders our ability to not suffer. Sloth and torpor and laziness, procrastination hinder our ability to not suffer. And doubt, that sort of part of our mind that uh, sometimes is unworthiness or self-doubt. And sometimes it's that skeptical uh, doubt and, you know, doubt in everything, <laughs> sort of nihilism, like nothing can make sense. I doubt, you know, I doubt there's any truth in this fucked up world kind of doubt. And sometimes it's just self-doubt, my own feeling that I don't uh, have much confidence that it's even, that I'm even worth it happiness or that I even have the possibility of being free from suffering. Craving aversion, restlessness, sloth, torpor, and doubt. What's the most biggest challenge in your meditation practice, in your life? So um, now you can talk to each other about what's hindering you these days. And you know, if you've been practicing for a long time, you might see Oh, in the beginning, it was really doubt. And then after years of practice, I have more confidence. I don't have any, you know, not so much doubt anymore, but now it's just lust. <laughs> it's just craving, you know, it's not the, I, I know it's possible, but I just hate pain and I'm just not good at tolerating pain. And I haven't, you know, the, the compassion hasn't come yet. So that might, it might shift for you. And you could talk to each other about how the hindrances have shifted for you and your practice over the years if you've been practicing for years. If you're brand new, you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> that is absolutely okay. You're welcome here. And uh, at home, the rooms are open and in the room, uh, please introduce yourself. Try to talk to some people you don't know yet. Meet some new people. I'll offer some mindfulness meditation instructions. Part of mindfulness is investigating, is a kind of internal inquiry of what's happening right now. And these five hindrances, the Buddha um, said, are part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, that when, when we are mindful, when we're here, we're present, we're paying attention, 
that you will see uh, at moments what's arising in the mind is doubt and you can just bring mindfulness and be like oh this is doubt and where you have that little bit of separation usually when we're in doubt we just believe it we believe the mind we're in it but with mindfulness sometimes you can just name oh my mind is so full of self-doubt right now that's what these thoughts are that's what these feelings are or there's sometimes when you're in craving you're in lust you're in greed you're just so in it you just are suffering because you're in it but with mindfulness there's that little bit of awareness meta awareness of oh this is just craving this is the experience of craving for this moment to be different than it is this is the experience bringing mindfulness to the craving to the aversion if you're anxious you're restless you're sitting here meditating and you start like wanting to fidget <laughs> and you just bring mindful oh this is restlessness oh, i want to fidget oh that's interesting where do i feel that in my body what kind of thoughts are associated the mind saying like you can't handle this <laughs> you can't just sit here do something uh you know drink your water do something uh and just being mindful oh, this is restlessness or this is you start to fall asleep during meditation investigating that oh this drowsiness this is a slothful mind a fog that comes over me and so we bring the five hindrances not as something that we need to get rid of but that we need to become aware of and ultimately learn learn, learn to not take so personal like oh craving is just part of what happens aversion is just part of what happens doubt arises and passes if we take it personal suffer about it but in mindfulness there's the potential to see it as pretty impersonal phenomena of the human condition you know the buddha said this is a universal thing that anyone that pays attention to their mind will see craving aversion restlessness sloth and doubt uh, which is the good news, right? It's not your fault. It's not just because you're a lustful, lazy piece of shit, even though you've been telling yourself that. It's just the human condition. The human condition is one of lust and laziness and doubt. And uh, it's the, you know, it's, so I'll talk more about that. But in the meditation, become aware of it, maybe even name it, label it. When you notice doubt, if any doubt arises, name it. Just be like, oh, there's a moment of doubt that thought i can't do this or i'm not good at this or happiness is not possible or whatever the that thought oh that's a doubt or that's a craving or that's an aversion or this is the experience of sloth or restlessness so find a way to be that's relaxed upright allow your eyes to be closed your body to settle into relative stillness. Let your body be relaxed so that you're not holding a stiff posture. Just the skeleton sitting upright, balancing on the chair, the cushion. Just resisting gravity enough to not slouch over, but not so much that you're uptight about it. Mindfulness is present time, non-judgmental awareness of so bringing no judgment to your experience. The hindrances aren't good or bad. 
pleasure and pain aren't good or bad. Bringing discernment, non-judgmental clarity. Ah, oh, this is painful. This is pleasant. Without putting that extra layer of judgment, good and bad on it. Just seeing what's happening in your heart, in your mind, in your body. In this present time, non-judgmental awareness works best if we can bring an attitude of friendliness, of kindness. This whole act of training the mind is an act of kindness towards ourselves, generosity. Doing these practices that will alleviate suffering in our lives. Perhaps it's the kindest thing that we could do, sit here, pay attention. Train the mind, the heart. In order to truly be able to investigate the mind, it's useful to first focus on the breath. Try to let the thoughts be in the background and concentrate, gather the attention with the sensations that the breath creates. Helps the mind settle, and then we can expand to this investigation of the hindrances after a few minutes of mindfulness of the breath. For those of you who are new to this, it's quite simple. Breathing in, know that you're breathing in. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Perhaps even noting in and out with each breath silently in your own heart. We're putting most of the attention on the sensations that the breath creates as it comes and goes.
a lot of mindfulness can be just returning to the breath. <laughs> Seeing we're getting stuck in our thoughts again. You can investigate, is this a craving or an aversion? Is this a doubt? Worrying? And then disengage from the thought, come back to the breath over and over for these first few minutes.
when we're new to practice, using the breath is often the best technique. It gives us something to bring the attention back to. But you'll still see the hindrances. What hinders your ability to maintain mindfulness of the breath? the restless mind, the torpor, the drowsiness, or the intrusive thoughts of doubting, cravings, aversions, what takes us away from the breath. The Buddha encouraged to begin with the breath and then expand to the whole body, head to toe, so many sensations present in this physical form. to investigate our experience of not just what's happening moment to moment, but what's the feeling tone? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? The sensations in the body, the emotions, and to expand to the mind, observing thoughts as they arise and pass. with a specific focus on what's hindering our ability to be completely at ease in this moment. Some form of craving, clinging, attachment. some form of aversion, resistance, fear, worry.
sometimes when the hindrances are quite strong, it can almost feel like we're being attacked. Attacked by doubt, storm of doubt. Or of craving, aversion, restlessness, feeling more and more anxious, like it's attacking us. But often, if we sit with it, with this non judgmental, kind awareness you'll see doubts arising and passing cravings coming and going fears just passing through awareness beginning middle end In the practice of loving kindness, we say to ourselves and each other, the wishes for 
being at ease, being at peace. We say to ourselves, may I be at ease. And what we're meaning by that, the spirit of ease, is may I be at ease with myself just as I am in the midst of craving and aversion of the human condition, may I be at ease. In the midst of restlessness and sloth, may I be at ease. And even when the mind forgets one's own worthiness, ability, When we get stuck in doubt, may I still be at ease even when the mind is confused. Our awareness is so much bigger than the contents of our mind, of our experience. Mindfulness is open and spacious inclusive, non-judgmental. Experiencing these vicissitudes, these hindrances as they come and go. useful and interesting after the bell rings and the formal meditation period ends to reflect, take a moment, reflect what just happened. How much of the experience was presence, mindfulness, how much of the time were we thinking about the future, really engaged in some important plans, some worries, some fantasies. 
And then as you reflect on your thoughts that you were involved in on some level or another, how many of them were fueled by craving for some pleasure to happen, something pleasant? Or the content maybe is more around afraid, worried about something unpleasant, fear of pain, angry about some pain that happened in the past, resentments. or doubts. One of my favorite um, things about Buddhism, I have a lot of favorite things about Buddhism, but one of my favorite things is the way that um, Buddhism normalizes the human condition without any judgment, without any blame. Uh, I feel like there's a core message in, in early Buddhism and that uh, it's not your fault that you're a self-centered, craving, doubtful, restless, <laughs> anxious person. It's not your fault. It's the human condition. He, it, you know, it starts with normalizing suffering. Are you, you know, are you, are you not happy all of the time? That's normal. <laughs> you know, having some challenges with your mind, your relationships, your life. That's normal. It's the first noble truth. Suffering. It's universal. And then starts to refine the, the different ways that we suffer and the different things that block our freedom from suffering, like this list and the comes in a few different places in the Buddhist teachings, but in particular as one of the objects of mindfulness. When you pay attention to your mind, you will see craving for pleasure like you know just reflecting in, in that 30 minute meditation how many times did your mind your body your experience say like oh man i'd be so much happier if this was more pleasant if i wasn't you know if i didn't have to sit here in this posture dealing with discomfort and the, the flip side of that which is aversion I think that often um, we blame ourselves. We think I must be, we take it personal. And we even, even the way that our language is, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm craving, I'm attached. I'm, it's all, and on some level it's, it is, it's our experience, but also it's the human condition. It's the nature of the human mind that we all have our own minds, but, they're not that different. It's, you know, it's part of being a person that we experience these five hindrances and we all do, everyone does. And anybody that claims not to either is uh, volitionally lying, totally full of shit, or just isn't conscious enough to ever really see their mind. And, you know, 
people that don't meditate actually often don't know their minds very well. Without meditation, you know, we're, we're so externally focused, uh, unless it's really intense, we don't see the subtleties of the constant craving of the human mind. The second noble truth, why is there suffering? Why are we not just naturally at ease and happy and peaceful beings? because of a survival instinct of our species that manifests as repetitive craving. And you start to be mindful, that's what you see. Oh, I'm craving for this, to, craving for that, craving for this, craving for that. And craving sounds pretty intense, but it doesn't necessarily need to be all that intense. And it's not even, I think it's important in Buddhism, for us to make a distinction between desire and craving. Desire, you experience desire sometimes. It's real, really take it or leave it. It's, you know, sometimes Buddhism, uh, I think, gets misrepresented as desire is the cause of suffering. But desire is inevitable. Like, you know, you, you, of course you desire comfort and pleasure and, you know, freedom from pain and all that's, you know, it's healthy. There's healthy desires, but craving is that story of like, I can't be happy without it. I need it. Not, I want it. I have to have, you know, I won't feel satisfied unless I get desire. Hopefully uh, feels a little bit more like, Oh, I want it, but I don't, I don't need it. I don't have to have it. I can be okay. Even in the midst of really, difficult situations. Of course, I'd desire not to be in the midst of this heartbreak or this depression or this sadness or this, um, but also I can accept it as it is. I can tolerate this really uh, painful experience that I'm, that I'm having. And craving is I can't tolerate it, it has to go away, which just makes it worse compiles it over, you know, makes it worse and worse. And it's natural again, Buddhism normalizes it that without training our minds and sort of long-term meditative training of the heart and mind, um, that cycle, the, the Buddha explains it in uh, dependent origination, this cycle of just compiling levels of suffering on top of levels of suffering, sort of happens all by itself without a mindfulness intervention. Mindfulness is the only way to intervene from this perspective between that which is causing us suffering and that which might alleviate it, non-attachment, letting go. But it does seem like it takes quite a while for most of us to get very good at letting go. Like there's, in every single moment, there's the potential, I'm clinging to something, can I let it go? And you know, it's there every moment, even if you're brand new to meditation, can I let it go? Can I accept it as it is? Can I stop resisting this? You read one Buddhist book, you know, you have all the answers. Right? Like you, you read the book. Compassion, non-attachment, don't take it personal. <laughs> it's not self, it's not personal. It's just the human, like we know, but there's that moment where it's like, ooh, I know, but I still, I can't let go yet. I'm not very good at letting go. I know that's what I, I have this mindful of Buddhist knowledge. I read the books, 
studied, did my homework, but I'm, you know, this attack of the hindrances, just I, my sense is, my experience with meditation is two things happen with long-term meditation practice. One is the intensity of the hindrances decreases. I know when I first started meditating a long time ago, uh, it felt so fucking intense in here. And my mind was so loud and I was so identified and, and believed the anger and the fear and the craving and the my mind saying, you can't be happy. And me being like, yeah, you're absolutely, yes, sir. That's true. And then after some years of being like, oh, my mind still says that sometimes, but now I know it's not true. I don't believe it. I'm not so identified with it the way that I was when I started meditating. And over the, the years of like, oh yeah, still, my mind still will give me terrible advice and the hindrances will, you know, say, hey, you'd be really much happier if. But it feels like less craving, more kind of coming into desire realm, less intense cravings. I don't experience that many intense cravings the way I did 30 years ago when I was starting my practice. So that decreased, that's the good news. The afflictive emotions, the hindrances, the restlessness and doubt and uh, craving and aversion, and it will decrease. I, you know, like if you keep practicing, that shit will mellow out some. The bad news is it never completely ceases, I don't think. I could be wrong. Maybe. A fully enlightened being experiences complete confidence all of the time, no doubt. Maybe experiences zero forms of craving and aversion, and there's never sloth or uh, restlessness in a Buddha, maybe. Here's why I don't think that's true. Most of you know my perspective on this. Because you know the story of uh, old Siddhartha sitting under the Bodhi tree, the Buddha? He's sitting there and he's saying, I'm getting attacked by lust and hatred and doubt. And he calls it Mara. He, he just, these top three, craving, aversion, doubt. Mara comes as violence, violent armies of Mara attack the Buddha. Lustful fantasies of Mara, the, the you know, it's very heteronormative patriarchal the daughters of mara come to seduce the buddha but you can just put that in your own sex object whatever yours yours are seduction lust craving and then the final thing in this image of the buddha um, which is a common uh, mudra the hand symbols are called mudras where he's touching the earth and like you know if you see the buddha with these extra long ET fingers that reach somehow down from his lap all the way to the ground. Um, he's touching the earth. And that's said to be his response to doubt. That when uh, Mara, that part of his mind is attacking him and saying, you are unworthy, you are incapable. Why do you think you deserve enlightenment? And I always feel like I want to 
push this point home. Because maybe some of us have been meditating for a while and we feel like, shit, why am I not enlightened yet? Why do I still have lust and anger and fear and doubt and, you know, so identified with my mind? Why am I, why is my mind still misbehaving in these ways? I've been meditating for months <laughs> or years or decades. The Buddha is on the verge of enlightenment. He's this far from total liberation. And what does he report? He says, my mind was full of lust and anger and doubt. And the only thing that really shifts is that in that moment, he saw this is not personal. This is just what the human mind does. It craves for pleasure. It hates pain. And it doesn't know, it doesn't, the unenlightened mind, it takes it personal, it has doubt. And that it's not the craving, the aversion, or the doubt that's the problem. It's the belief. It's the identification. It's, does it make sense? Are you, you, are you following me? It's not the arising of the confusion in the mind that's the problem. Because I call all of them confusion. All of, you know, we be not so nice and call it ignorance but it's all ignorance it's all confusion the idea i can't be happy until i get something is a confused idea it's it's an ignorant it's not true it's a lie you can actually be happy right here and now in the midst of your boring fucking life you don't need to get there or in the midst of whatever joy you're experiencing it's impermanent it'll pass but Whatever's happening, however wonderful or however difficult, it's possible, this is the core Buddhist message, it's possible to not suffer about what's happening, no matter how painful, how pleasant, it's all impermanent. And on some level, it's all really fucking impersonal, the, the fact that the mind is, has these tendencies, these hindrances. And I like that they're called hindrances. They hinder our ability to see clearly and respond wisely. It's hard to see clearly when you're in the midst of doubt. It hinders, it like covers, it obscures the clarity. Uh, when you're in craving, you forget impermanence. When you're in aversion, you forget, it obscures. You used to know about impermanence and then it's just gone. Nope, this one's gonna last forever. Yesterday I knew everything was temporary, but this one's so intense, I'm pretty sure it's gonna last forever. Whether it's intensely pleasant, this is so good, I'm gonna cling to it forever. Or this is so bad, I can't tolerate it for another second or somewhere in between those. Anyways, this the Buddha touching the earth, I know I went on a tangent there. Um, he says that that's how he responded to his mind saying that he was unworthy or unable, the, the self-doubt. He said, I touched the earth um, just to kind of connect with, I'm part of this planet. And that worthiness isn't some special, you know, gold star of humanity. <laughs> it's not earned. It's inherent. It's universal that uh, you don't have to be special or, or 
you know, to deserve happiness and freedom and to have the capacity and the ability to train your own mind to see through its own confused tendencies of um, that this is a universal truth that all living beings have the power potential to wake up and and waking up means seeing clearly and responding appropriately to what we're seeing. Pain needs to be met with compassion, not hatred. Hatred makes it worse. Pleasure needs to be responded to with non-attached appreciation. Clinging ruins it every time. But none of us, you know, we're all like, if, if none of us are very good at being non-attached attachment is just like wired in us <laughs> clinging craving and attachment i heard one dharma teacher say you know we call ourselves human beings but we're not very good at just being we should maybe call ourselves human clingings because that's what we're good at klingons naturally i'm not very good at just being with what is but i'm good at trying to cling to it or push it control it get rid of it but the whole you know awakening path of buddhism is learning to be with what is and actually take birth as a human being being in the midst of our pain being in the midst of our pleasure being with the different mind states that, that come and go seeing the hindrances for what they are not your fault natural part of the human psychology i mean it's really it's really what buddhism is it's humanist psychology it's this perspective of the human condition that is empower humanist meaning empowering that the human beings are powerful and that we have the ability to change our relationship to what is pretty uh, naturally neurotic situation we're born into, you know, and then that that's just for like normal, healthy, well-adjusted humans, <laughs> you know, and then you add childhood trauma and addiction and everything else on top of it, or, or real mental illnesses on top of it, it just creates extra challenges. But even without those extra challenges, even without uh, traumatic life experiences, which most of us have, you'll still experience the hindrances. They'll still experience craving, aversion, doubt, restlessness. So the Buddha touches the earth and he just says, I'm, I'm part of this thing. And we're all part of this thing. And we're interconnected as the four elements. Part of the first foundation of mindfulness is reflecting on and coming to understand that this body that we're so identified with and take so personally which creates the emotions and the, the brain the thoughts is just the four elements and you're the four elements and you're the four elements and everything in existence is the four elements and in that way we are all interconnected as the four elements not so separate as we feel we feel separate but it's a lack of wisdom that makes us feel so separate and the more wisdom we develop the more interconnected 
we come to feel, the more uh, same, the more we relate to each other, we empathize with each other. So there's hope, right? The, the good news is the longer we practice, you know, in each moment and then long-term, the longer we practice, the hindrances do start to decrease some. The bad news is, as I was saying, Mara is attacking Buddha on the verge of his enlightenment. And then after the Buddha's fully enlightened being, he says, I'm totally free now. I'm free from clinging, I'm free from aversion, I'm free from belief in a permanent self, that I'm, I'm awake, I'm a Buddha. The term Buddha means awake. And he says, I don't suffer at all anymore. Zero suffering. He said, I didn't get rid of my pain, still pain. Still have a nervous system that, you know, still have a body. You know, your knees still hurt once you've been sitting there for a while. But I don't suffer about the pain in my body. And later in his life, he had physical injuries. He had a bad back. He had, was basically living with chronic pain. He had some, you know, a lot of emotional difficulties in the community, a lot of conflict, a lot of accusation, a lot of power struggle. He had to deal with all of that stuff. He says, you know, it's, not pleasant, <laughs> nothing worse than being a meditation teacher, <laughs> nothing worse than being a Buddha. It's pretty, it's not that pleasant, but I don't suffer about it, was how he reported his liberation. He said, but there's that part of my mind that we he called Mara, he said, that, that does return. He said, I, I still get attacked by Mara. The hindrances still come. And it's, I think it's part of why in mindfulness, he said, this is just part of what you have to be mindful of. They haven't gone away forever. Mara keeps coming back to the Buddha over and over after his enlightenment in the form of craving thoughts, aversion, doubt. He said, the difference is now I see it clearly as impersonal part of the human mind. Before I was suffering because I believed it. I was identified with it. I was an unenlightened being that was ignorantly thinking it was who I was. Now I'm saying it's just part of the human condition. It's not self. But it continues. So Mara keeps returning to me. And in the teachings, he starts to just say to his mind, I see you, Mara. Try that in your own life. When the hindrances are arising and you're starting to get into some doubt, some unworthiness, some shame, some craving, some aversion, some anxiousness, and, you know, and you're starting to get a, just say, oh, I see you, Mara. I see you. I see that that's what is happening here relating to it rather than from it. That shift that has to happen if you wanna be free. That shift that has to, and will happen eventually. That gradual shift from I am these thoughts and feelings to I'm aware of these thoughts and feelings. 
that are arising and passing, these impermanent thoughts and feelings. I'm aware of them. And meeting them with as much compassion as I have access to in this, min in this moment, as much non-attached appreciation if they're pleasant as I have access to in this moment. As much wisdom as we can in each moment. It's a really radical invitation to reframe our experience to everything's an opportunity for awakening. Turning all of the difficulties we experience in our life into an opportunity for practice. Compassion, how oh, this called, because you know it, as I saw, you know, we know it, right? Some of you maybe are brand new, but almost all, you know, by the time you find your way to a meditation class, you read a couple Buddhist books, you know, <laughs> probably unless you're court ordered or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> your therapist was pretending like mindfulness isn't Buddhism. It's like, go check out this meditation class. And then you come in here like, oh, fucking therapist was tricking me the whole time. Sneaking that Buddhist mindfulness shit into our therapy. What are your thoughts about the hindrances? Any questions, any comments, clarifications? We'll open it up for some dialogue. If you have a question at home, you need to hit the um, reactions button. There will be a um, raise your hand thing in there, I believe. Uh, and in, in the room, you can just raise your hand and I'll call on you. or not. No, that's it. So clear, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, ask, uh, yeah, so I was kind of touching on you know, um, something I kind of struggle with. Know which category maybe aversion, but it has um, uh, on it. And I know it's probably not attachment. Vision <laughs> not attachment. But what about like the pain if you have like you know, empathy? I guess is a good thing. But if you're, for me, maybe too worried about other people trying to control or manage their lives trying to prevent harm from other people. So maybe just um question is like what category of interest would that be? And would that be sort of like not attached? Sort of suffering I find myself taking on too much too much people's pain and it almost becomes sort of a uh, problem because I want to love and support people. But I do have a tendency of taking too much on, and uh, it can kind of backfire. So I can kind of create walls because I don't want to feel that pain just because, you know, it's not like I see people that I care about suffering. So, 
Can you recap for us, Teach? I'll try. Question is about, um, you know, sort of where, where do we place in the, in the hindrances, the experience that's so common for so many of us where we're um, suffering about other people's suffering and, and uh, wanting people to not be in, in pain, not to suffer. And how do we, um, because it can really easily, you know, it can be some of its compassion and it can really masquerade as compassion um and you know there's a quality of compassion to that i found myself wanting to ask you and i want to ask everybody um you know and also reflecting on all of this stuff i was just saying and what the buddha's teachings why is it that we think people shouldn't suffer or shouldn't be in pain what is what is what is this delusion that we this universal, pretty universal delusion that we all share that says, oh, you should not, you should be happy all of the time. You shouldn't have any pain in your life. You certainly shouldn't suffer. Uh, and our own intolerance, not only for our own unpleasant experiences, but my own, my, I, I feel like the more tolerant I've become of my own pain, the more tolerant I've become of others. And that uh, equanimity practice in Buddhism, uh, you know, compassion for sure. But in true Buddhist compassion, there is zero, I repeat, zero amount of attachment to it being other than it is. The definition of compassion is and or should be non-attached caring. Not attached caring. <laughs> non-attached, loving, caring about pain and, and suffering. But as soon as there's clinging there, it's no longer true compassion. It's now attached craving for it to be different than it is. But I ask sort of as a rhetorical question, why do we think people shouldn't suffer? Everyone suffers, it's the first noble truth. Like we know that. Now, of course, out of compassion, there's that feeling of like, if I can do anything to help you, I want to. I want to see you help yourself. I wanna see you do what you can. I care about it, but also the equanimity, which understands all beings have their own karma and their happiness or unhappiness, they're gonna suffer. Every first noble truth, everyone's gonna suffer, no matter how much you fucking love them, no matter how much you care about them, no matter how attached you are to, there's just sort of that equation. Am I gonna join them in that suffering or am I going to just love them and care about them and support them and encourage them as much as I can to free themselves? But it's a great question because we it's universal clinging craving and that idea that people shouldn't be in pain and it does seem you tell me but it does seem to me that there's an equation here by how tolerant we are of our own pain of how much tolerance we have for other people's pain and that the more tolerant and merciful and compassionate we become inwardly the more we're able to be with other people's pain and just be like yeah that's fucking sucks huh 
You're really doing that to yourself, aren't you? I wish I could take it from you, but I know I can't. But I'll love the shit out of you from over here. I'll support you. I'll encourage you. I'll, you know, do what I can. But also, I know my limitations. I know I can't fix control. Even the fully people would come to the Buddha and say, you're an enlightened being. I'm really suffering. Can you fucking give me a hand over here? And he'd be like, sure. Pay attention to your breath. <laughs> Break your addiction to your mind. Change your relationship to pleasure and pain. And you, through your own actions and efforts, will decrease the suffering in your life. That's what I can do for you. I can point you in the right direction. Over and over was the Buddha's you know, because also he was in that guru culture where there's all these gurus saying like, yes, come to me and I will give you bliss. And he's like, no, no, I'm not selling any of that bullshit over here. I'm just giving practical tools. Here's the practical tool to end your suffering. <coughs> and so when we find ourselves naturally attached, then we have to acknowledge it. Oh, craving, clinging, trying to control more equanimity, more compassion, less clinging, more wisdom in this. So in the hindrances, it is uh, it's craving. Craving for experience to be different than it is, for people to be different than they are. And then maybe we internalize that and I, you know, turn, I, I wish I was different. I, I crave for me to be different than I am. <laughs> You know, I'm not, not, we're not so good at accepting ourselves. Oh, here I am clinging again. Here I am craving again. Here I am aversive again. Here I am taking it all personal again. Humility is necessary because you know what to do, but you can't quite do it yet. And you get better at it over the long run. You see, oh, I'm not suffering as much as I used to, but I'm still suffering decreased compassion has increased but such a slow process equanimity is so important so important to train your mind and your perspective to understand that uh, total personal responsibility and we can care and we can love and we can protect and we can advocate and we can inspire there's all of this there's a long list of what we can do but what we can't do is change anybody ever <laughs> make anybody be different than they are ever but there's a long list of like we can encourage and support and try to inspire people to do the work themselves but ultimately even if you were a buddha maybe you'd inspire people more often <laughs> you're modeling it you know if you had a buddha around modeling it we maybe we'd all be a bit more inspired to but even the buddha couldn't do it for anybody so Remembering that helps sometimes helps us let go and then have the humility to be like, okay, I'm still suffering about it. <laughs> you know, my compassion is so mixed with attachment and I have to have the humility to just acknowledge that it's not pure non-attached caring. It's attached caring. It's sentimental caring. It's not non-attached wisdom, compassion. At home, there's a hand from Valerie. Go ahead, unmute yourself. And it's Nikita Noah. Hey. Oh, hey, Nikita. Happy birthday. Uh, 
we're gonna do the monthly and your present. Um, I understand the tools for living. What did the Buddha say about death? The question, could you hear him? The question was what, what, what the Buddhist teachings about death. Um, a lot of encouragement to, while we're living, contemplate death and uh, the, the core truth of impermanence. And even in the first foundation of mindfulness, right after he says, uh, pay attention to your breath and your body, he says also pay attention to the truth of impermanence on the level of this body is impermanent. And there's the, um, I think, five stages of a corpse decaying that he encourages us to reflect on death right from the beginning. Be mindful that although you're very much alive right now, it's not going to last. Be mindful that this body that's so you know, healthy, hopefully, currently, is going to be dead and decaying and in all these different stages. Break your identification with the body uh, from, you know, initial mindfulness teachings. Uh, then there's the, the five daily reflections. He says, right, you know, for available to everyone, he says, uh, as part of your daily practice, your daily reflections, reflect that um, uh, this body is subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. This body is, is subject to uh, sickness, illness, disease, injury. I'm not exempt from illness. This body is subject to death. Death is certain for this body. I'm not exempt from death. And then he goes on to say, reflect that everything that you cling to, will, you will lose. Everything that you hold near and dear, it's impermanent. You don't get to keep any of it. <laughs> the body dies, so your stuff, your, the people, you don't get to keep them. The fifth part of that daily reflection, and this is a little bit about death, maybe a little bit about reincarnation, he says, your only true possession in this lifetime is your karma. The only thing that you actually own is how you behave, how you respond. He says, that shit you take with you, <laughs> not your stuff, not the people, not the relationships, not the bank accounts, not the you know, success you had in this incarnation, but you take your karma. You own your karma. That's it, the only thing. So both of those, and there's more, but both of those are preparation for death, turn towards it. Of course, everything's impermanent. We're impermanent. This is just, you know, then we could go into a whole nother conversation about reincarnation, but we'll table that one. Whether or not there's rebirth or reincarnation, what we know for sure is we're temporary. This lifetime, beginning, middle, end. What we don't know is whether we're in the middle right now or not. <laughs> we know that you know we don't know when the end is. You know, we might be in the middle. We might. If you're old enough, you know you're coming towards the end. Not teasing you, Nikita, or any of the other elders in the sangha. You know, well, if you. What <laughs> uh, um, we know is that you know this bodies only last so long, and so if you know when your body gets into its seventies and eighties, and you start to know, like, well, like, you know, probably towards the end of this incarnation. But for those of you who are younger, people in their twenties or thirties or forties or 
I had my birthday last week, 50s, more than halfway done with this incarnation, you know, definitely into that last third of life. But we don't know, we could all die tomorrow, right? Fucking massive earthquake could come and we could all die right now. So we don't know when the, you know, like whether or not we're gonna get that lifespan. We don't know how long it's gonna last. We know it's temporary. And so a huge uh, encouragement to how am I showing up moment to moment right now? How am I responding to the pain in my life right now? And of course, from a Buddhist perspective, death is not the end. I was very suicidal for the first half of my life, or especially the first quarter of my life. And Buddhism sort of fucked up suicide for me. <laughs> I don't know about you. But suicide's only a relief if you think you don't have to come back on some level. When I was a little kid, I thought I had learned about reincarnation. I thought like, well, at least I'll like come back and it'll be like pretty good. Like I'll get a, it's like, you know, I'll get a better family. My parents won't be hippies next time. <laughs> Something like that. But if reincarnate, I mean, I don't know for sure, but if it's, you know, it's like, oh, death is, if death isn't the end and there's some karma that continues and I got to go through all that fucking shit again. And the likelihood of getting a good rebirth after the life we've led, probably not that good. So might as well stay here and do the work and heal and become kind and compassionate and wise in this lifetime, changing our relationship to our pain rather than just again, out of aversion for pain, ending it. I'm very glad I didn't kill myself when I was younger because uh, I have an amazing life because I kept meditating, kept purifying karma, kept doing this thing that I would have missed out on so much if I would have just been like, this is too painful, I'm out. And I had a repetitive thought about this is too painful when I was young, except for when I had a good bag of crack that gave me some relief. But then coming down off a crack is the worst. Get real suicidal real quick. I have a question. Sure, Eric. Um, so since I've been coming around, I've been hearing the word suffering all the time. And so does the Buddha teach that all forms of pain or, or discomfort or something that you don't like is suffering? Because for me... I've been in situations recently and I'm like, oh, I'm suffering. And what happens, I go, oh, poor me. Um, and then I have to step back and go, am I really suffering or I'm just uncomfortable in this situation? So is that words just not use universal and I shouldn't apply it to every single situation that I have difficulties with? Um, let me just reframe it. We'll, we'll end here tonight. That's a great, great place to end. Uh, the question is, um, are uh, pain and suffering synonymous the way that we're using it in Buddhism? Or are they, and the answer is no. And maybe a simple equation is pain, anything unpleasant, whether it's uh, annoying or, you know, uh, you know from, from the little annoyances to the big unbearable emotional or physical pains are all just unpleasant. When we meet something that's unpleasant with resistance, it gives birth to suffering. Mm -hmm. 
So the whole Buddhist teaching is it's possible to end suffering about the unpleasant experiences of existence. So pain and suffering are two very different things. We are creating suffering in our relationship to pain. The teaching here is it's possible to be in the midst of something really unpleasant and not suffer about it, not add suffering to it. When you meet pain with compassion, non-attached caring, then you don't, there's no suffering, it's just painful. And you can be somewhat at ease in the midst of that pain. When you meet it with crack, <laughs> suffering's pretty inevitable. We'll end there tonight. Thank you. Uh, just a reminder that Buddhism is um, a practical, applicable uh, experience. It's not a, a philosophy to be believed not a religion to have faith in, but it's, um, it's practices to, to directly experience. So experience them directly and come to your own conclusions. You don't need to believe Buddhism, but these tools, these practices will change your own, give you a direct experience and then trust your own experience rather than what I or any other person says. Trust yourself is, is a core teaching, but trust the mind when you've trained it, not the untrained mind, which is maybe just Mara trying to kill you, <laughs> attacking. Don't trust that part. Um, as always, class is done by donation. This is a donation-based meditation center. Um, suggested donation for drop-in on Monday is 25 bucks. If you can afford a $25 donation, that'll help us pay the bills, the rent, the insurance, the electricity, the couple of employees. Um, do what you can, give what you can, give what feels right to you. If you are, if you have the means and the are inspired to, uh, please consider becoming a monthly supporter where you say, I want to just give, I think if you go into the website, it'll say 25, 50 or 108, our, our special Buddhist 108 donor, where monthly you just do a, re a repeating donation where you say, I want to give 50 bucks a month or hundred bucks a month to the meditation center. Please consider doing that where um, we don't quite make enough money to, uh, meet our, our expenses. So if you can give, please do give. A couple of announcements. Um, today I decided that I'm gonna do a day-long meditation retreat here on Sunday, April 16th. And Sebastian and I will get that up for registration tomorrow or the next day. So sometime this week, you'll be able to register to come and practice for the day where we'll do like nine to four sitting meditation, walking meditation. I'll give some talks and some instructions, but we'll do a whole day of sitting and walking mindfulness practice. So uh, that'll be April 16th. Uh, in May, at the end of May, Memorial Day weekend, I have a three-day silent meditation retreat up, up the mountain, up in Big Bear, uh, open for registration. There's plenty of room. There is some, um, uh, there's single rooms and doubles available. Then there's some dorms. And we've also done some su supplemented uh, kind of partial scholarships for people that can't afford it. So it, it ranges from like over a thousand to I think people can come for 
uh, what's the low end 350 or something so 350 which is a little bit less than they're charging us the way that we try to do retreats is um kind of we rent the retreat center and then you pay whatever it costs to rent the retreat center i teach for free on the retreats just as i do here and i just uh, accept your donation so uh, try to come to the memorial day retreat register early if you're going to come out for that and then in the fall at the same place we'll have a um i'll have a seven day retreat for those who want to sit longer than than the three-day retreat i'm also trying to put together a um against the stream thai forest lineage pilgrimage for november i'm going to take a group of people to thailand with me um, i haven't fully organized that but i'm organizing a thailand trip um, and uh, people are going to have to sort of uh, submit a application for that because um, i won't be able to take everybody but people that are interested in that that's coming uh, soon so a bunch of things coming up through against the stream this year i forget anything sebastian no just uh make sure you're following on instagram or sign up at the bottom of any page on the website so you know as soon as that stuff comes up thank you and anybody in the room that hasn't met sebastian yet sebastian has been working with me on refuge recovery stuff for the last uh, year or so maybe more um two years and um is now also helping me with against the stream stuff and as uh you know part of, of working for the nonprofit and helping me with the social media and the retreat organizations and posting the stuff so anyways sebastian's here uh, sometimes now on monday nights and if you have any questions against the stream related you can always talk to him uh, as well as me about any of that stuff May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all beings everywhere. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.